Uh, Mark chapter 14, page 711, if you're using one of our Bibles. I think that's right. We've been in Mark for about eight months, so I can kind of guess and get within one page, I think, now. So uh, Mark chapter 14. Um, and tonight we're going to look at a picture of Jesus that's really different than we're used to. Um, when I think of Jesus, I think of all the amazing pictures of God that Jesus is. You know, I think about, you know, walking on water. You know, I think about feeding 5,000 uh, people, 25,000 people with a Lunchable. Uh, in other words, like, I think about those moments. He, like, talks to a storm and it stops. I can't really relate to those things. Most of, I don't know if you guys, like, walked across Radnor Lake this week instead of around it. But, like, uh, that, that's what Jesus is like. And sometimes that's hard for us when we approach the scriptures to be like, man, I... I don't, I don't experience that on a daily basis, uh, the, the divinity of Jesus. Tonight, we're gonna get a really cool picture of the humanity of Jesus. Uh, every single one of us in the room, regardless of where you are at on your spiritual journey, uh, you can relate to Jesus Christ in this story in some way. Uh, and that's really comforting, I think. And uh, we're, we're gonna get to see a picture into the true heart of Jesus, I think, as well. And that's because he's gonna be in a really difficult situation. And isn't it true that whenever we go through these difficult situations in life, we often uh, kind of find the truth about who we are coming out, you know, like good and bad, like it just kind of comes out, you know? So for me last night, this is when the USA soccer team lost to Mexico in overtime. And Virginia, you were already asleep. I was like crying myself to sleep. And I was like, man, the truth of my heart is coming out that I care way too much about this game. And I am up way too late when I have to preach tomorrow. And it's just like this moment, I was like, man, my priority is in the wrong place. Like, but we have these moments where we go through something. That was a really small example in comparison to what we're looking at. But we have these moments and, and the true nature of our hearts comes out in the moments of difficulty. And Jesus is gonna be in a moment tonight, a difficult moment of pain. And we're gonna see into some of the true nature of who he is and how he interacts with God. And here's the good news. Uh, we get to relate to Jesus. Like that's a cool thing. And we get to see who he really is. So a couple weeks ago, uh, if you were with us, we looked at the story before this called The Last Supper. And this is when Jesus has basically a Thanksgiving meal with his best friends and they take bread and wine and Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. It's gonna be shed or it's gonna be broken. It's gonna be shed for you. And this is what's gonna happen within the next few days. So you, you, you better be ready for it. And in fact, one of you is actually gonna betray me so that this can happen. And Jesus has this conversation with them and then they go for a walk uh, to this garden outside the city. And as they're walking, uh, they remind themselves, the disciples kind of remember this and Peter pipes up again and he's like, Jesus, even if all of these guys, they desert you, like it's still me, I'll be there. Like I'm not gonna desert you, I'm not gonna leave your side. And Jesus tells him, man, tonight three times before it gets to morning, uh, you're gonna deny me. And this is the conversation that has taken place directly before the text that we're gonna look at tonight. So we're gonna uh, read the text and then jump in with a few questions. Does that sound good? Mark 14, uh, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. We'll look at that verse a lot tonight. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 39. And he came again, or, and he again went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So the text begins by telling us in verse 32, they're out going to this garden. Jesus goes goes a little farther into the garden with a few of his disciples. I want you to notice something really interesting in verse 33. It says, and he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and sorrowful. This word in the the original language, began, is clearly a passive word. In other words, Jesus didn't choose to step into this moment of difficulty and sorrow. Uh, Something happened that caused this emotion to well up inside of him to the point where he feels like he's gonna die. The word there in the Greek is a rare word only used to describe alarm and shock and astonishment other places in scripture. And the whole week I was like, it's kind of astonishing that Jesus is astonished here. It's like, what happens to the God of the universe in human form that causes shock? It's like, what began in this moment? The book of Luke tells us uh, with this same story that each time Jesus came back to the disciples that he was drenched in sweat and there was blood in his sweat. This is a rare physical thing that can happen, but if you experience a great enough emotional shock, uh, you can sweat blood out of your pores. And it's like, what was happening here? So I wanna look at three questions that are gonna frame uh, our time together in the Word tonight. So three questions that we're gonna look at. The first one is why the magnitude of Jesus' distress? Why the magnitude? The second question is gonna be why the timing of Jesus' distress? Why the, why the timing? And the third question is what does it mean for us? So two whys and a what. Why the magnitude, why the timing, and what does it mean? So the reason, this first one, why the magnitude of Jesus' distress? The reason why this is a puzzle to me, the reason why this is interesting and intriguing to me is that there have been thousands of people Uh, before Jesus and after Jesus, that have died for what they believe with peace and poise, with not even a hint of difficulty that Jesus is showing in this moment. I read a story this week of uh, two guys that live in 16th century England named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. There's a monument to these guys outside Oxford. And there's uh, a a quote that's engraved on their memorial. And and they died uh, by being burned at the stake for their faith in Jesus. And this is the quote that is on their memorial. Hugh Latimer looks over at his best friend, Nicholas, and says, be of good comfort, Nicholas. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, I think it will never be put out. And then they sing a hymn together as they're being burned alive. It's like, what? It's like these guys died with joy and hope and praising God, like no bloody sweat, no asking God to do it a different way. Like what's going on with Jesus here that's causing this? Like what's going on? And Jesus is gonna tell us in verse 36. So uh, look down with me to verse 36. Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this what? What's that word? Cup. Remove this cup. So Jesus tells us about the cup. So I wanna talk about what this is for just a moment. In ancient history, uh, the cup 
uh, was used in a variety of ways. Uh, in one way, it was used as an execution method for a lot of people. So uh, guys like Socrates died, were executed by drinking a cup of poison. And it came to be known as something that represented your future, something that represented your destiny. And the Old Testament writers, the Hebrew writers that wrote the Old Testament books of the Bible used this picture of a cup to describe the wrath of God on human evil. That's what they used this picture to describe. So we'll look at texts like Ezekiel 23. We'll talk about the cup of God's wrath as one of horror and desolation filled with sorrow. We see in Isaiah 54, it refers specifically to Jesus in a prophecy saying that he shall drink the cup of fury and stagger. So here's the magnitude of the situation. No one else in all of history has faced what Jesus Christ is facing in this moment. Like we can try and come up with some difficult or some, some examples that we can relate to. Like, you know that one time that you were like, uh, you had an exam the next day and your girlfriend broke up with you the same night and it's like real hard. You, know, like, you remember that time? It's like that when you were like really having a tough night. It's like, it's not, there's no one and no example that can like actually come close to what Jesus is facing. This cup of justice of our holy and perfect God towards all human evil in all time. And he's faced with metaphorically taking the cup and drinking it. So we see here that Jesus is not just an ordinary martyr dying for the sake of his faith, for what he believes. No, Jesus is the Messiah. This is what sets him apart. This is why the magnitude of his agony, taking on the sin of the world and being our deliverer. He's not a martyr, he's the Messiah. And before we move on, I just wanted to touch on a quick implication about what this means about God. Um, let you in on a little bit of my kind of spiritual journey and some things that I've wrestled with over the years. Um, it's really hard for me to think about and like accept a God who has wrath. Like, I, don't, I don't know if you ever feel that way. Maybe you've never thought about this idea before, but um, it's, it's not really palatable to think about a God who just has anger and wrath toward evil and, and punishes evil in the ways that he says that he will. And different times in my life, it's just like really, really been tough for me. I don't know if you've ever been there. Maybe it's weird to hear a preacher like get up here and talk about that. But it's like, this is a tough thing to swallow. This week, I was, as I was studying and trying to come to grips with the magnitude of Jesus' agony and what that means about God, I, I felt like I came to grips uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane is where we come to peace with God's wrath. It's an interesting way of putting it. We, we come to peace with God's wrath in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the reason why is this. I think that people, uh, I, want to get rid of God's wrath, want to get rid of hell, because I think that it makes God more loving. I said, man, a loving God wouldn't, wouldn't feel this way, wouldn't have these feelings toward sin or evil. Like, he'd just be like, lovey-dovey, teddy bear God, and that, like, best friends, cool Jesus. Like, that's the God I want who's loving. And, and what I found, I think, is that to remove the wrath of God does not make him more loving. It makes him less loving. To get rid of God's anger and wrath towards sin and evil does not make him more loving. If you take away the wrath of God, then he's no longer just or perfect or holy. And what it does is trivialize what Jesus faces in this moment. It minimizes what Jesus faces on the cross. Look at what Jesus is taking. This is a costly love that Jesus shows Without God's wrath, Jesus doesn't take anything and he's just another martyr dying for his faith, just like thousands of others in history. So we've looked at the magnitude of Jesus' agony. 
And I think the reason uh, that we looked at the magnitude so that we can get a picture of the depth of Jesus's love, how deep his love goes because of the picture that it shows about God's wrath towards evil. But it still begs the question to me, like what began in this moment? Because Jesus didn't get any new information, right? Like he didn't like get a download of info from God. It's like, oh, that's where I'm going. Uh-oh, this is gonna be tough. Like he knew about this. He's been teaching about it to his disciples and to the people that have been following him for three years. This is where I'm going. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll be betrayed. I'm gonna get killed on a cross and then I'm gonna raise from the dead for the sins of the world. Like he knows what's coming. So why in this moment uh, would Jesus find himself in this agony? So if the magnitude of the agony shows us the depth of his love, I think the timing of his agony is gonna show us the perfection of his love. So I wanna look at the, the timing. Why in this moment? Why is this the moment when he feels this pain? Think about this for a moment. Jesus has lived in perfect intimacy with God the Father for all time. A perfect relationship outside of time and space has known God in perfect relationship forever. And, and here's what I think happened in this moment. Um, I think as Jesus was walking in the garden to pray, he would turn his soul toward God like he would often do in prayer. And what he found uh, was not the normal relationship, the normal intimacy with God the Father that he ex normally experienced, but he began to taste the first sip of the cup and what it would bring. And like Isaiah said, he drinks the cup and, and he staggers. A guy named uh, Bill Lane wrote a great commentary on the book of Mark. I wanna read you one of his quotes about uh, this moment. He says, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety then, out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs. It's not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering or death. Rather, it is the horror of one who lives solely for intimacy with the Father and who came to be with his Father for an interlude before his betrayal and death, but found hell rather than heaven open up before him. This is what happens in the garden. The agony of Jesus' experience is caused by a vivid and full view of what the cup will bring, forsakenness from God the Father. God is saying, I think, as it were to Jesus, will you take this cup? He's putting it in front of Jesus. Will you take the cup for them? What are you gonna do? Here's what is before you. Is your love for them such that you will go on? And the beauty of Jesus' words in this moment, I think really illuminates some things about his heart and how he loves us and how he loves God. You know, we talked about the moments of difficulty, the moments of suffering, showing the true nature of our hearts. The true nature of, heart, of Jesus' heart is gonna be exposed in this moment, and it's just spectacular. I love how Jonathan Edwards, he was an 18th century uh, preacher, puts Jesus' response in this moment. And I tried all week to try to figure out a way to like paraphrase what he says, but I couldn't do it. And I didn't wanna plagiarize. So I'm gonna read the quote for you. And it's really awesome. Uh, so I, I wanna invite you to close your eyes and to just like listen uh, to these words. This is what Edwards says. And when the dreadful cut was before Jesus, he did not say within himself, why should I, who am so great and glorious a person, infinitely more honorable than all the angels of heaven, why should I go plunge myself into such dreadful, awful torment? Why should I, who have been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go cast myself into such a furnace for people that can never repay me for it? Why should I yield myself to be crushed by the weight of divine wrath for those who have no love for me but have fallen asleep on me? 
Such, however, was not the language of Christ's heart, but on the contrary, his love held out and he resolved even then in the midst of his agony to yield himself to the will of God to take the cup and drink it for you and me. And when he took that cup, knowing what was in it, so is his love to us, the infinitely more wonderful. And so is his obedience to God, the infinitely more perfect. So I wish I could have written that. Like, wow, look at the love of Jesus in this moment. You can open your eyes. This is no longer the quote. Uh, look at the love of Jesus in this moment. The weight of God's wrath beginning to bear down. And what is his response? He says, God, all things are possible for you. If there's any way for us to do this a different way, can we do that? Can we remove the cup? Can we do this a different way? But not what my will says. What, do what your will is. I think like Edward said, Jesus shows perfect love for God in this moment and perfect love for, for others, perfect love for people. So I wanna look at those two concepts for just a moment. Perfect love for God, perfect love for people in this moment. We'll start with the latter, love for people. So Jesus goes into the garden with like his best friends, you know, the closest people in his life. In his hour of greatest need, what do they do? They fall asleep on him, right? Like he's not asking anything of them. It's such a simple command. He's like, all right, sit here, stay awake. Like nothing difficult about it. Like, I don't know if the, the Thanksgiving meal at Passover was just like food coma time. Like they just could not stay awake. I feel like after the first time Jesus woke me up, I'd be like standing on one foot, like trying to do something to stay awake, but they keep falling asleep on him. Jesus says to Peter, like not even one hour, like one hour by my side, just like see the humanity of Jesus in this moment, just desiring for his friends to be with him. But this is all of our stories, isn't it? Like all of us find ourselves in the disciples' shoes in this moment, every single one of us here. I have repeatedly, despite the constant wake-up calls of God in my life, fallen asleep on his promises, fallen asleep on his purposes in my life, fallen asleep on his will for my life, fallen asleep on his ways for how to live my life, and given the time that I'm awake to the things that I think will satisfy me in life. And, and this is our story. We all fall asleep on God. We all have and we all will continue to do so. But look at Jesus' love for these guys. For us today, like how magnificent is his perseverance? The people that fall asleep on him, that betray him, that deny him and desert him. He presses on. He resolutely decides to yield his will to the Father. What love is this? That's why Ephesians 2, 8 is gonna describe the love of Jesus as rich in mercy, like wealthy, abounding in mercy. It'll say that because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were asleep on God, he made us alive together in Jesus Christ. This is the picture of what's happening here, but it's so much more than just his love for people. Uh, his love for God in this moment is, is amazing. And I think the reason that, it, that his love is amazing is because he perfectly obeys God in this moment. Uh, so what is perfect obedience? I wanna talk about this for a moment. What is, what is obedience? I think, uh, you can disagree with this maybe, I think that perfect obedience is to obey when there's nothing in it for you. You just obey because... Um, so I don't have kids yet, uh, hopefully not for a while, because they say things that's like, you're like, okay, Johnny, I need you to clean your room. And what is the, what is the question that a lot of kids ask? Like, why? See, see, we all did it. We all know that. Like, I did that to my mom all the time. That was the 
ultimate negotiator. I'd be like playing video games and my mom was like, okay, Larkin, uh, I need you to clean your room right now. And I was like, okay, mom, I, I really appreciate like your desire for me to like go clean my room and like stop the video. It's so, it's so cool. Like, thanks for like coming to me about that. Like, appreciate that. Um, here's, a, here's an alternate proposition for you. Like, what if, what if we don't? And what if I keep playing this video game because it's like super fun, like so much joy happening here. Like, let's just continue doing this and then can I have to like Friday? How about that? It's like she turns the video game off, go clean your room. And, and the response from the parent is always like, because I what? Because I said so, right? So Dave, if, if you look at Micah and it's like, okay, Micah, I need you to go do this. And he's like, all right, dad, what's in it for me? It's like, you're not arguing with that little dude. You're like, no, I said, go clean your room. So if there's a bargain in it, then it's not really obedience, is it? Uh, If there's something in it for you or for other people, it's like, it's not true obedience. And I think it's just ridiculous how perfect Jesus' obedience is in this moment. This is the first time in all of history, think about this, when God has told someone, obey me and I will give you hell, literally. I will cut you off from my presence. It's like all throughout the scriptures, God has told people, obey me and you'll find life. I'll deliver you, I'll reward you, I'll give you my presence, I'll be with you. It's like, this has been the promise of God for all of time and it's this moment where he looks at Jesus and says, obey me and I will cut you off from my presence. And Jesus obeys, like nothing in it for Jesus in this moment and he obeys perfectly. Journey back with me for just a moment to the first garden, to the Garden of Eden. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but in, in Genesis 1, you know, we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And this is, this is just awesome. Um, God tells uh, Adam and Eve, obey me about this tree and you will live, right? He says, don't eat the fruit and, and you'll live. That's, that's, the, that's the deal. And, and what do they do? They, they disobey and their disobedience causes them to be separated from God. Their disobedience separates them from God. And and Jesus in the New Testament is often described as the new Adam or the second Adam. Listen to the contrast here. God tells Adam, obey me about the tree and you'll live. He tells Jesus, obey me about the tree and you'll be nailed to it so that others can live. Jesus obeys and is separated from God. There's a great reversal that's happening here. Sin begins in the garden, but salvation will begin out of the garden. Sin began when the first Adam disobeyed God about a tree. Salvation begins when the second Adam obeys God about a tree. And this is the great exchange of of all of history. Jesus Christ dies the death that you and I should have died because of the sin that we committed. Colossians 2 will say that he uh, set aside the debt that you and I owed and nails it to the cross. He is mocked, he is beaten, and he is hung on the cross, picks up the cup of God's wrath, drinks it to the last drop, turns the thing over and slams it down and cries, it is finished with his last breath. What love is this? What perfect obedience is this from Jesus? And you and I are not just forgiven of our debt uh, so that we're just like sinners that God like tolerates and forgives. Uh, We are credited with the righteousness of Jesus' life so that God doesn't see us as just like tolerating these sinners that he hates, but as his beloved children. This is a huge reversal. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus became sin on our behalf so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. 
We become the righteousness of God and we become the children, the sons and the daughters of God. This is why we sang that song earlier, Scandal of Grace. Like the scandal that this represents of grace, that Jesus would die in our place so that our souls could live. Like we don't just sing these words every week. You know, it's like not just random words that pop up on the screen. It's like we sing about these truths because they matter, because Jesus accomplished these things. It's all because of you, Jesus, that my soul will live. That's why we sing, sing these things. Man, this is the love you need. This is the love that you were created for. No earthly relationship, marriage, career, or critical acclaim will satisfy what your heart was created to experience in Jesus Christ. Nothing else will be able to help you fight the cups of small suffering that you face in life because Jesus is the only one that has faced the ultimate cup of suffering on our behalf so that we could live. No one else, nothing else will, be help you, will help you uh, be able to forgive the people that fall asleep on you, the people that betray you in life. Help you love them unconditionally because Jesus is the only one that has faced sin and hell for the people that betrayed and fell asleep on him. Nothing else will transform your heart with perfect integrity like Jesus because he is the only one when he was all alone in the garden, the weight of God's wrath bearing down shows perfect obedience. Like what integrity does Jesus show here? Jesus is the answer to your heart's desire and you can be confident that he has done everything necessary for you to experience that love. So if the magnitude of Jesus' agony, of Jesus' distress has shown us the depth of his love and the timing of his agony has shown us the perfection of his love, I wanna show us and think about for a few minutes how we now have the opportunity to step fully into that love because God has accomplished what's necessary for us. So what does this mean for us? This is the last question. What does this mean for you and me sitting here 2015, 2000 years later? Got two implications for us. One uh, kind of on a really big level, one on a smaller level, practical level. So on a big level, what I think this means is that you can't outrun the grace of God. Like you can't out sin uh, the, the grace of God, the love of Jesus, that it will not go further. Like you can't mess up so bad. I want you to think about this, like in this moment, all sin, all, like all of it comes down on Jesus in this moment. And his love doesn't wear out. Like it doesn't eat through his love in this moment. So it's like, if that didn't do it, how are you gonna do it? Like if that didn't eat through his love for you, then how is your failure on a Wednesday afternoon gonna eat through his love for you? That's why Romans 8 tells us there's no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Like we have utter perfect confidence that the love of Jesus will go further. We trust in his love and we walk in relationship as sons and daughters, beloved children. That's the, the big implication. And the second implication, I think on a more practical level is I think Jesus gives us a model to follow. Jesus gives us a model to follow. And the question I wanna to use to frame this is, uh, is this. So if you're taking notes, this is what we'll use to kind of think about in communion and throughout the week. Here's the question. Um, what do I do when God's design conflicts with my desires? What do I do when God's design conflicts with my desires? And I wanna look at what Jesus does when, when God's design conflicts with his desires in this moment and see if we can clue in on some things about what it means to follow God. Uh, I think we see three things from Jesus. I think we see pursuit. I think we see honesty and trust. These are the three things. So first, pursuit. Jesus goes into a moment of difficulty and doesn't run from God, right? He, he doesn't run the opposite way. He, he actually goes deeper 
into relationship with God and prays and presses in with the very one that he feels forsaken by. I love this. My tendency is so much like the disciples. Like, I want to take a nap. It's like, when, when things get hard, I want to watch Netflix. I want to go to a movie. I want to do something else that I just need to escape. And, and this is not what Jesus does. And I think this is an amazing model for us to follow about what it means to be alive, what it means to find life in God, to pursue the heart of God, even in the moments of difficulty when we don't understand. It's really tough to do, but I think that's the first thing Jesus shows. But he doesn't just come to the, to the feet of God and pray. He, he shows honesty. Look at the emotional honesty that Jesus shows with God. There's a real desire in Jesus to do something differently than what is before him. He asks over and over to his father uh, for the cup to be uh, passed, for it to be done a different way. He's like, God, please, like, if it's all at all possible, Let's do it a different way, but like, what encouragement is this for us to come to God with all of our questions, all of our difficulties, all of our anger even, all the hard questions. Like, we can come to God in these moments and be honest with him. It's like with God and with each other in this place. Just a great reminder for us. Like, when we come in here, we don't have to fake it. We don't have to put up a facade like, hey, I got everything answered. Everything's good. Life is good. We're like coasting. Everything, like, we are honest with each other. We're transparent. We're vulnerable. It's an amazing example that Jesus um, presents for us. But it, it's not just uh, pursuit and it's not just honesty. If that's all you have, it can lead you down some tough roads. But the last thing that you have to have is trust. It has to end in trust. Above all else, Jesus firmly places his trust in the goodness of God. He trusts that God's will and God's ways will be ultimately more valuable than his limited perspective can see. And here's the hard part. This is why this is so tough, especially for me. I want this to be a formula, right? It's like, I wanna, I wanna pray this way and then things to change. It's like, okay, God, uh, all things are possible and uh, your will be done. Can we do this a different way? But like, no, not my will, your will be done. And then I leave and it's like, okay, really looking forward to all this changing in my life, you know? And sometimes God's uh, heart is to answer the prayer of his people. So clear that God wants to answer prayer. But sometimes things don't change because God's design is different maybe than our desires. And that's what you see, like Jesus, the most holy person ever that has ever lived, asks God for things to change and they don't. So it's not a formula. But he still trusts God that in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that difficulty, that God's presence will sustain him that God's presence will satisfy him beyond anything else that could. So we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We pursue the heart of God. We're honest with our Father and we trust in his goodness, that his ways, that his will are ultimately more perfect, more eternally valuable than our limited perspectives can understand. So as, as we take communion, we talked about this last week. We, we take communion, we take the bread and we take the juice and we remember what Jesus has done for us like the weight of what Jesus took, what Jesus faced in this moment. We take this and we celebrate and we worship him and we adore him. We say, God, you are the only one worthy of my praise, the only one worthy of my worship, the only one worthy of the greatest of my energy and my time and my resources. Jesus, you are worthy. That's what communion is about. We do this together. So as we, as we sit and as we reflect, as we think about uh, the goodness of Jesus, I want us to process and think about that question. Uh, what happens in your life when God's design might seem to conflict with your desires? What do you do in those moments? Maybe it's with your career. 
maybe it's with a relationship, maybe it's with something else, your health or, or whatever it might be. Um, are you pursuing the heart of God? Are you coming to God honestly, sharing the actual feelings that you have with, with the Father? And, uh, and lastly, are you trusting him that his ways are ultimately more, more valuable if things don't change. Like, let's think about how we walk through those times of difficulty in life, because we all have them. We all have those areas where we're not content and we want things to change. So I want us to really wrestle with together uh, what this means. Let's practice praying uh, with emotional honesty with God, but trusting in his goodness. Let's pray.